0: The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, July 8th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Have you seen Debbie Lesko, the Republican from Arizona, speaking on the House floor? A clip of this went around the other day and she was talking about the extent that she would go to to save the little ones.
1: I have five grandchildren. I would do anything, anything, to protect my five grandchildren, including, as a last resort, shooting them, if I had to, to protect the lives of my grandchildren. Democrat bills that we've heard this week want to take away my right, my right, to protect my grandchildren. They want to take away the rights of law-abiding citizens.
0: Doesn't make sense. I'm not a hunter or gun owner, but I, I don't get how killing the kids actually saves the kids. Okay, what really happens is she left a word out, and it happens. I forgave her this slip of the tongue. But what about this subsequent slip of the prefrontal cortex?
1: Can you imagine if you had a disgruntled ex- or somebody who hates you because of your political views and they go to a judge and say, oh, this person is dangerous. And that judge would take away your guns.
0: No, probably not. Even if your political view were, say, supporting the lady who'd shoot her grandchildren to protect them, it probably won't happen. Lots of people can imagine having, however, a disgruntled ex or someone who hates them. And that person goes not to a judge, but to a gun store. And the gun store would sell them guns. They can imagine that because it happens all the time. go also said,
1: When Republicans were in the majority, we actually passed legislation that was signed into law that would have prevented mass shootings. But they didn't.
0: I mean, we were around. Publicans controlled the House 2011, 2019. That's when Las Vegas, Pulse, Sandy Hook all occurred. What was the time they passed that bill that could have prevented mass shootings? I'll give her a pass on not meaning any of the things she said or just meaning the things that she meant for us to mean or maybe not meaning some of them, but meaning others. As long as you don't disagree with her political views, which is, of course, the surest ticket to getting your guns revoked under the Supreme Court case of Bruin v. Fanfic of Heller v. v. I just made it up. It reminds me, this all reminds me, of Mary Miller. You remember her? She is the Illinois representative who almost certainly didn't say that the Dobbs ruling was, quote, a victory for white life. I mean, she 100% did say it, but she almost certainly didn't mean it. However, what you did in trying to see, could she have meant this, is you delved a little deeper and right there, right up the top of almost all the coverage was, this is the representative who got into trouble upon being inaugurated into the house for praising hitler oh not for all the things hitler did certainly not for hitler's anti-gun policies but just you know the good stuff that hitler did or said what she said was that hitler was right about this adolf hitler by the way hitler was right about one thing he said whoever has the youth has the future said the childless adolf hitler He actually didn't say that. The actual quote is, he alone who owns the youth gains the future. Only, he didn't say that either. He didn't say the German version of that. It just became one of those memes. It sprang out of some general praising of the Hitler youth. And, you know, we really as a society do need citations of Hitler to tell us what Whitney Houston so ably evoked. How about just saying, as Walt Disney, or as the creators of Paw Patrol told us, he alone who owns the youth gains the future. Miller easily won her runoff, by the way. She was no more punished by voters than Lesko was by her own children, who reportedly are still allowing Nana to have sleepovers with the grandkids. But the interesting thing, well... The interesting thing that doesn't verge on the horrific at our elected representatives and the opinions they hold and how they express them, that interesting thing was that the Lesko statements, that was about a month ago. They just surfaced now and they were in service of opposing a bill that actually passed the House of Representatives about background checks. And it was thought that that bill, by Georgia Representative Lucy McBath, who's, uh, who lost her son to gun violence and is a big gun control advocate, it was thought that that bill would go nowhere. And while technically that exact bill wasn't taken up by the Senate, the idea was, and the Senate passed a red flags law, or at least laws as part of that compromise package that strengthened state red flag provisions. So... It's an example of the internet and everyone coming together, me included, to delightfully dunk on a silly to stupid statement made by a silly to stupid person. But we had some actual progress. The actual substance that contradicts the silliness was advancing logic, the logical regulation of guns, even incrementally. So maybe it's a good thing. On the show today, it is an Antoine Tig, let's not let 21 more days pass before we get together and I share my mistakes. But first, Eric Barker is a writer, researcher, and general man of curiosity. His new book is Plays Well with Others. It's subtitled The Surprising Science Behind Why Everything You Know About Relationships is Mostly Wrong. I don't know what he thinks I know or don't know about relationships, but I'm about to find out. Eric Barker up next. As the bard, meaning Billy Joel, once said, honesty is such a lonely word. Well, Billy, you may be right, I may be crazy, but social science tells us not necessarily that honesty is a lonely word, but that lonely is not strictly speaking an honest word. What we call lonely was an all but unknown feeling Uh, in the 19th century or if not an unknown feeling, that word was not applied in the way we use it now. And if you think about loneliness as solitude, it goes from being a pejorative to quite a good thing. This is all and one of the great observations in the many such observations. In the new book by Eric Barker plays well with others, the surprising science behind why everything you know about relationships is mostly wrong Eric, author of Barking Up the Wrong Tree, congratulations on the new book, which does not pun upon your name in its title. (laughs) Thank you very much. Did you feel, well, let's get right into, we'll get to loneliness in a second. Another, uh, not just observation, but uh, path of inquiry was about judging a book by its cover. With the first book, did you feel compelled to extend the bark and barking uh, brand that you had established in your newsletter and your writing life?
2: I mean, the thing for me was, like, what I what I extended was the idea of my first book was all about kind of looking at the maxims we all grew up with. You know, we, we always hear with success, we always hear, you know, nice guys finish last and it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I myth busted those and barking up the wrong tree, looked at the science, see whether they're true or not. And so we, I wanted to do this with relationships, which was actually more of a sacred cow, and to look at, does love conquer all, you know, is a friend in need, a friend indeed. And it was really interesting to me to see like that in many ways, the, the myths were even bigger and less true when it came to relationships. Right. So you focus,
0: the first one was general, maybe your greatest hits that you had been pursuing in the newsletter. And there's a great joy in them just uh, thinking about these idioms. How much do they uh, apply? Uh, if If anything you could think of that project as it was at least a good framing mechanism for some random insights as to life. But this book, the framing mechanism is less so much let's explore and explode idioms and more the idea of loneliness and the idea of relationships. And you can apply all your myth busting tactics to that.
2: Yeah. I mean, critical with with loneliness, it, it really blew me away, like the fact that, you know, most most of us think the cure for loneliness is simply spending more time with other people. And that just doesn't really seem to be the case. I mean, certainly spending more time with other people helps, but we've all felt lonely in a crowd. You know, being proximate to people doesn't necessarily fix it. And John Cacciopo, who's the leading researcher on loneliness, you know, basically found that lonely people don't spend any less time with people than non-lonely people do which blew me away. And it's that loneliness, like you were saying earlier, you know, it's like loneliness is a subjective experience. Loneliness isn't merely being proximate to people. It's how we feel about our relationships.
0: So what about this idea of the uh, meaning of the word loneliness having changed? Is that just an etymological quirk or is there something significant in that, that our actual perception of loneliness changed?
2: basically that, you know, before the 19th century, lonely just meant by itself, like isolated. There wasn't the negative spin, the negative stigma on it. And in the 19th century, we had this explosion of individualism, which led to, you know, a lot of positive things in terms of, you know, more free markets, more human rights, more, you know, more options for people, which unlocked a lot of tremendous value. But we we lost that feeling of being a person in a group to the same degree that we had it before most people 19th century and prior were embedded in a religion a community a nation you always had the feeling of connection like underlying everything you did you saw yourself as a part of something and so it was in 19th century actually in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein that loneliness first took on that 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 tinge of negativity. Because before, you know, you you always had the idea of solitude. You know, most people were in a house with many other people, but they got some solitude as well. And solitude is a positive thing. Vivek Murthy, the Surgeon General of the United States, talks about research showing solitude is protective versus there's tons of research showing that loneliness actually leads to basically like every negative health outcome you can think of. So loneliness is really this feeling of connection that underlies, you know, everything, how we feel, if our relationships are meaningful and fulfilling or not.
0: So when John Donne wrote uh, No Man is an Island in one of his meditations in the 16th century, he was acknowledging a fact that everyone knew to be true and he was uh, phrasing it in a different way. It wasn't as if he was arguing against a prevalent feeling of loneliness and saying, no, uh, feel connected. He was just saying, well, we all feel connected and this is why.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, back then it was basically that was kind of basically accepted as true. It's like you you look back historically, exile was, you know, one of the worst punishments that could happen to you is some considered it worse than death. You know, Aristotle said any person who completely who, who can successfully completely live on their own is either a beast or a god. You know, it just wasn't even an option. It was not on the table to live a life by yourself. You know, it wasn't until the 19th century that people started to be able to live. And you saw in the 20th century this explosion of, you know, people living on their own, people not being people living in, in large cities, not being connected in some sort of a community aspect.
0: Was this just because we couldn't, like, it was impossible technologically for any one person, either by themselves or somewhat isolated to get all the rudiments of life that would keep them alive back then?
2: Exactly, the big driver was just the issue of, you, know, you, you couldn't exist on your own. You know, it's like you, you couldn't rely on you know, getting your food you know, by yourself you know, at the corner store. You know, it was this issue of we needed each other to survive. And as free markets grew, As options grew, as we had these kind of third parties that provided a lot of these services, we didn't have to rely on families. That's easier, you know. So for for human beings, there's always this struggle between our natural desire for community and between the issue of wanting autonomy, wanting freedom. And, you know, neuroscience research shows that, you know, when we feel lonely, our brains actually scan for threats three times as fast. You know, at a very fundamental level, our brains know you know, being separate, not being part of a group is scary because if yeah. things go bad, we don't have we don't have someone on our left
0: fr- flank and right flank looking out for us. Yeah. It,
2: exactly. And so it was never an option before. We weren't really wired for it. But, hey, not having to depend on people being autonomous, it's kind of nice. But we we need to find a balance between the two. It seems like the pendulum has swung too far You know, to the other direction in the 21st century.
0: So was the idea, did the idea of friends fundamentally change? You write a lot about this in the book, and now friends are seen as uh, ancillary or way down the checklist of the necessities of life. But uh, you pause it and I think prove that that's not true. But take us through maybe if there was an old conception of
2: the importance of friendship to the modern. Absolutely. And uh, this all goes all the way back to Aristotle because the funny thing was, to, to prove your point, in writing the book, When writing about love, there's tons of research, tons of research. When I started writing about friendship, there isn't much research, which actually is representative of the issue, which is that friendship doesn't get the respect these other relationships do. Friend is used, that term is used more than any other relational term in the English language, including mother or father. But friends, you know, they, we lose them after seven years half of close friendships aren't close anymore. It's it's really, it's really screwy, but what's really fascinating is that actually proves, that fragility actually proves one of the strengths of friendship because Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman found that friends make us happier than any other relationship. And that's the reason, is because it's never an obligation. Unlike a, a spouse, a child, an employer, there's no contract or pseudo-contract there. The only reason people are your friends is because you like them and that fragility you know you have to you have to enjoy it it's never it's never an obligation it's always something you enjoy and and so the friendship tie is very weak but it proves the purity because if we we don't we're not there unless we want to be and that's why friends make us so happy
0: so like the last book there are a collection of idioms in this book that you interrogate And I've always puzzled over idioms because on the one hand, they're supposed to reflect a wisdom or a societal wisdom. But on the other hand, it's so often the case for every idiom, which is to say an encapsulation of wisdom or that which is true, there is the opposite sentiment expressed in an idiom, right? Like... Absence makes the heart grow fonder versus out of sight, out of mind. Can they both be true? They're opposites. Even in Beatles songs, can't buy me love versus all you need is love. They're contradicting each other. And they're both, I believe, Paul songs. neither It's not a John versus Paul. So with that in mind, when you uh, took on the task of, say, asking ourselves, uh, is a friend in need a friend indeed? Were you also aware of the many contradictions to this sentiment out there?
2: Absolutely. This is this. Is, it's it's though no, It's one of the things I talk about in the book. Is that issue of, you know, it's like uh, what was it? Um, you know, many hands makes for light work. You know, and like you have you have a many idioms that have a complete opposite, like you're saying. It's this is something I think we all deal with. You know, and you know. We we struggle with these things, and I think what happens is we bounce back and forth between them, whatever serve, best serves our interests, <laughs> you know. But we need some answers here. This is one of the the entire reasons I I looked at these things because I I didn't know are these maxims true sometimes, not true other times. Were they true in a prior era, but they're not true now? Are they true for some people, not for others? And. You know, when I wrote the, the, the first book, I was going through a major career transition. So that's why I looked at the maxims around success and I said, should I really be following these or not? We have the science. And now relationships, which have never been my strong suit, you know, I did say, it's like, does love conquer all? Is a friend in need a friend indeed? And with that specifically, you know, there's a whole debate over whether it's indeed, meaning in action. Or indeed, yes. as in certainly. So
0: yeah, you have four four possibilities of what a friend in need, a friend is a friend indeed means. What did you light upon? What does it mean? Uh, translate it in uh, more modern language, if you
2: will. So, out of the four possibilities, the, the the two that had real relevance is you 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 could talk to researchers and hear what they thought, and then you could talk to the average person and hear what they liked. And what it really came down to was the researchers felt that the expression was historically meant to be indeed, meaning in action. If a friend is a friend, they will assist you in action. You know, but it's like what people preferred was the idea of a friend indeed in terms of certainty, support. Someone will definitely be there for you. And there are two lines of research here. And what's really interesting is that it it does actually make sense in the end, because in the end, the most important thing when we feel the best is when we feel someone supports us, is when we feel that's what leads to good friendships, is not the the strict accounting of favors. You are doing actions for me and that benefits me. That leads to transactional relationships. So it's understandable why researchers might say, oh, hey, you will benefit from this. But emotionally, we feel the most support when, whether people can actually contribute or not, whether they are there for us emotionally. So
0: I had noticed in the book and in some interviews, you talk about you're not great at relationships. Um, so when you do research on this or anything else that you've been researching and writing about and getting what your uh, blog slash newsletter up to, like uh, several hundred thousand subscribers, how much does your own research and writing historically, how much has that changed your
2: actions and changed your life? I mean, At times it certainly has. I gotta say, like, you know, work (laughs) working in what will be called the self-help arena, I don't think this gets discussed. It is very personally punishing. (laughs) To just read all the time, well, I'm wrong about that. Well, I'm wrong about that. I've been doing that wrong. It's it's like having conscience overdrive, you know, where you're like, oh Jesus, I really screwed that one up. You know, it's it's really it's really tough, but the truth is, like, it is nice to to hear not only, hey, I could do this, I could be better. But it's also nice to hear, okay, I was doing that right. Keep that up. Don't change. From this, what I, from writing this book, what I really took away was in terms of friendships was time and vulnerability, you know, spending time being deliberate about it. I'm pretty introverted, you know, and it's like making the time really matters and then opening up, which is something I've never been good at. So the truth is I've been taking steps in both those directions. It's, it's been very helpful. Uh, but, also, probably because we never get advice on friendships, they're kind of just they're treated in this magical way where nothing is deliberate, unlike love. Mm-hmm.
0: From your experience with the blog, what makes what do your readers want, and how often do you feel like that's something you have to give them? And how often do you feel like what I need to give them is what they need, and they they might not know they like it. You can't always give them what they need you have to service the customer at some point but how do you navigate that
2: it is an excellent question and a constant struggle you know because for me what it really comes down to is like yeah there's different topics of interest there's infinite topics of interest when it comes to self-improvement um i generally look at like you know what is of interest to me what is of interest to the reader but to your point as well it's like what are they interested in what do they need i try and bridge that gap in terms of presentation in terms of how do i make it entertaining How do I bridge it? How do I say, here's the problem, and maybe you're looking for this, but this is the solution that has actually been shown to work. You know, I think that is, I I get over it in terms of how it's delivered, not necessarily what it's delivered, because if you lead with the problem, it's in a problem people are having, and I generally try and focus on problems that we all deal with, then I think once you say, here's what the research says, you know, and then people can say, I relate to that problem, what he's saying makes it sense, it seems like it's validated, then I think with many people, certainly not all, many people will be along for the ride. They'll say, if this works and has been shown the work and I have this issue, then I do want to hear what you have to say, even if it's not what I expected to hear. And in fact, that can actually be a positive because it's surprising and people don't want to hear the same old thing that they always knew but probably aren't doing.
0: Just like with all your idioms, just like with all the aphorisms we talked about, there is often an opposite aphorism out there, with many of these studies, there's actually an opposite study, and that's good, science iterates, but it does seem to me that people come to you for a certain brand of science interpretation that you could apply to your own life, and mostly... Uh, I think people like, well, that was a little unexpected. They like things that were a little unexpected, but basically fits in with the kind of person who's going to be seeking out a science-y self-help blog. So you can't get get totally depressingly hopeless on them. But you know what? There are some things that are in fact totally depressingly hopeless, right? There are some things, another, I guess, uh, unstated premise is how much is in our control. But there's so much that's not in our control, and I wouldn't think you'd want to do a week's worth of posts about that. But uh, am I right?
2: And have you thought about this? Oh, absolutely. It's it's a major issue for me, because, I mean, like, you know, one of the reasons I was reluctant to write a relationship book is because often the whole genre seems focused on telling people what they want to hear. And, yeah. I mean, I, I put a warning at the front of the uh, love chapter because I knew I'm like, we are going to have to discuss a lot of stuff. This is going to be like a whiskey sour without the whiskey. You are not going to want to hear some of this stuff. And I'm like, you know, stick with me, Frodo. I will get you to the Shire. But like, it's, this is going to be a tough road. And like, we, ha- we have to get through a lot of these tough things. In terms of the issue of research contradicting, that's definitely true, but I try and focus on stuff that is replicated. I try and st- focus on stuff where we've seen a pattern again and again. Um, like, I definitely hear you. There's plenty of news articles you see where it's a one-off research study, you know, that has surprising results, which usually don't replicate. But for a book, I, can, I have the time to do enough research to make sure this has been seen again and again. But, yeah, there is that issue of some stuff people don't want to hear. And, frankly, that's where I feel like humor comes in. You know, if you can soften it, if you can lighten it, if you can tell people the truth, if you can find the vein. Because, like, when we were talking earlier about loneliness, you know, when you say, uh, when I say, like, oh, loneliness isn't cured by being near people, a lot of people might reject that out of hand. But once I give people the example of, ever felt lonely in a crowd— Did you did you feel connected in Times Square? It's like, no, you don't feel connected to those people. You don't know them. You know, it's like once you give people an example and they go, hey, wait a second, that provides a wedge for you to kind of get in there. And I think humor can help soften it as well.
0: Eric Barker is the author of Plays Well With Others. The surprising science behind why everything you know about relationships is mostly wrong. Thanks, Eric. Thank you. And now, the spiel. It is an Antoine Tig, our name for a 21-day period. Also, the story we, as a peoples, tell ourselves. Mistakes were made over these 21 days, and I shall now acknowledge some of them. I misidentified the gangster who used to shuffle around Greenwich Village in a bathrobe. He was, in fact, not Sammy the Bull Gravano. Not the Bull, but the Chin. Vincent the Chin Gigante. Vinny the Chin Fun Fact. He had a wife named Olympia and a mistress named Olympia. Do you think that got less annoying to either one of them once they found out about the other? I would think, just knowing how these things work, the wife was 100% pissed off, but maybe a little touched that he found a mistress named Olympia, whereas Mistress Olympia was always like, you know, what is going on here? I just want to be the other woman, not the other Olympia. Uh, if I had misidentified, for instance, uh, Fat Tony Salerno, that that would have gone better. There are a lot of Fat Tonys in the mafia. Uh, on trial right now is a guy named Anthony Pandrella. He goes by Fat Anthony. They've gotten a little more formal. You know, we're not about the casualties of just calling anyone a Tony. It is Fat Tony possibly morbidly obese, Anthony. Thank you very much. I mean, Fat Tony is such a common nickname, I believe that is the character on The Simpsons. I am not so much disappointed as I am
2: blinded with rage.
0: But don't tell anyone it was me who told you. I didn't say nothing. Ben Tarragon wrote in to say that I called Ehud Olmert and Benjamin Netanyahu bad names. I called them presidents. They are, in fact, prime ministers. That's how Israel's government works or, as is the case, doesn't.
1: Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and Foreign Minister Yair Lapid have agreed to dissolve the country's parliament.
0: Yeah, this move will prompt the country's fifth election in just three years' time. John Stieglitz, wrote in saying on Saturday's show where we replayed an interview as we do on the Saturday show. You mentioned about the court's legitimacy. Mr. Tanny has made his ruling. Now let us see him enforce it. No, the chief justice at the time he said was Marshall. And he went on to say, you're supposed to pronounce Tanny Tawny, which I also knew. In fact, I knew the whole thing. In fact, in fact, I knew the whole thing because on an N20 of the year 2020, I corrected that very mistake. We played an interview with the mistake that I needed to correct then, and I need to correct now. Thank you, Stieglitz, for getting in touch with me about that. A gentleman by the name of John Neustatter, Neustatter who has written in before like this guy said hello mike i don't think you're consistent on gun laws and state and county lines you often point to new york and new york city as benefiting from strict gun control laws which i favor to the extreme left of you okay but today in passing which was uh, i think on tuesday talking about the highland park shooting you said in passing that geographical boundaries don't stop killers just for consistency isn't that true of new york city can't someone from alaska drive a serious ban weapon into Buffalo and sadly mass kill. Yeah, I mean, there's whole Canada as a buffer in between. But yes, let me clear this up for you, John, because here's what I did say and was saying. Um, Also, let me clear this up for you. So what I think you're saying, these are phrases that come across as a little snarky. I think I really am uh, clearing it up. I shall clarify. What I said about the Highland Park shooter was that I don't think there were any laws that could have stopped it. Now, I might be wrong. There might be some red flags involved with the incident that's being reported in 2019 when he had his knives taken away. And in fact, authorities are looking at that. But there are going to be, and I think this might be one or might not, but there are going to be some mass shootings that all the laws that we can pass, including red flags, including age restrictions on AR-15s, including maybe just possession in localities of AR-15s, they're not going to stop. This was a shooting that happened that was not going to be stopped by the laws we can pass. That doesn't mean that the laws we can and have passed don't stop many shootings, right? I would never say that New York City's laws have Prevented mass shootings from occurring. There have been mass shootings. There were 10 on the subway. Those weren't mass killings. But I will say that those laws, especially in conjunction with laws in neighboring states and municipalities, which are stricter on gun possession, do depress the overall rate of gun crimes. Mass killings, by the way, you know, a ban on AR 15s is not going to stop mass killings. What I have always said is that the murderers are attracted to these weapons, and these weapons, because They uh, are pretty effective at firing off a number of rounds, one squeeze per trigger. But you have a lot of uh, rounds in the magazine do comport more or do correlate more to the deadliest of mass killings. So, again, a little bit subtle, but I know that you get it. These laws are somewhat effective in what we're engaged in, which is, here's a phrase, catastrophe management. America is the best we could do, and it's not great, but it's the only thing we could maybe do to help address or to help bring down the death toll and the instances of these mass killings, engage in catastrophe management. Stricter gun control laws are one step that could hopefully manage catastrophes, but in this case, I don't think even all the laws that we could pass would have done anything. And now a letter from Colin Marr, Adrian Stander has written in with a similar sentiment, but I'll read Colin's letter. Dear Mike and the Gist crew, the le- by the way, my favorite summer replacement series in the 70s. On last Saturday, June 16th Spiel, I heard an audio clip of a peacock's call followed by Mike's announcement that was happy. Unless Happy the Elephant is an expert at mocking peacock calls, and I'm certain that was not Happy the Elephant. Happy the Elephant was the elephant who sued. Actually, let me be clear. She had surrogates sue on her behalf. I think kind of undermining her case that she was a person. And New York State did not agree that Happy was a person. They didn't rule on the question, is Happy actually an elephant? And what Bill and Adrian, and I think maybe some others, have said was that that call that we played was a peacock's call. Okay, we will now play the exact call that we played on our show. (coughs) All right, and we will now play a peacock's call. (coughs) Those do sound similar, I will go back and I will tell you what the method was. In the piece on the spiel, I quoted CBS local reporting on Happy the Elephant. And they began their package with... By the way, don't don't write in and say that was, you know, the uh, western crested warbler. That was me.
1: It's a disappointing verdict today for activists trying to free Happy the Elephant from the Bronx Zoo. They argued the animal was being illegally detained and is entitled to, quote, bodily liberty. CBS 2's Christina Fan has the divided decision. Happy is
0: a 50-year-old Asian elephant living in the Bronx Zoo, but should she... CBS played the sound that I conveyed to you that they said was Happy the Elephant, so I'm not really guilty of playing a bad elephant sound. I'm guilty of plagiarizing from the wrong local news station. Fair use, not plagiarizing. I I was just quoting them. I took it on faith that they were accurately quoting an elephant, they turned out, I guess, not to be quoting the elephant. Colin Mayer, postdoctoral scholar at the University of Alaska Anchorage in the College of Arts and Science, Environment and Natural Resources Institute. Here's a guy who knows peacocks and knows elephants. Sonia Saturday, not a real name, I'm going to assume, but a real artist. She writes very naughty comic books. She wrote in, and this has got to be, I mean, this is, this is, this is the kind of correction why I do my show and sometimes I'm glad I make mistakes. Because if I could be corrected and educated to this level every time, I'll wind up a lot smarter. Sonia writes in, hey Mike, a quick note about your Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle references regarding the Leonardo satellites. You incorrectly refer to Splinter, the mutant rat who taught the turtles as being a Kung Fu master, Master Splinter is the master of ninjutsu, which is a Japanese discipline practiced by the ninja. Kung fu is an umbrella term for Chinese martial arts. Ninja turtles, Mike. Ninja turtles. My sons, if you are to become
1: true ninja, you must work harder. Your path in life will not
0: be... I'm sorry I got the martial art discipline of this fake cartoon rat wrong but given that cartooning animation drawing is your life and you know you grew up in the 80s and this is important to you i happily not to quote the elephant admit my mistake sonia and thank you for writing it for the first time ever a lot of people uh, have commented on the gist's page on reddit Uh, We're trying to get that going to replace this thing called Facebook, which has been having a lot of problems just on the macro political level, trying to move away from Facebook. To remember to go to the gist page, which is reddit slash the gist, I would suggest a jingle. Jingles stick in the head and the ear is earworms. Wanna comment on the gist, but think you'll regret it if you keep it to yourself? Pop over to Reddit. Howard Rosenberg writes in, Mike, I'm happy you discussed the issue of the meaning of me from Miss Hutchinson's testimony. You thought the cooling saucer of democracy was the U.S. Senate, but America's most exalted chamber is the gist page on Reddit. I'm terrible at jingles. So Howard writes him, uh, since Cassidy Hutchinson testified, Many other media outlets have taken the liberty of emphasizing the me in the testimony to mean that Trump believed that it would not hurt him, but would hurt somebody else. Indeed, Rep Cheney herself repeated Ms. Hutchinson's testimony with that emphasis.
1: And repeatedly said, they're not here to hurt me.
0: But when you listen to Miss Hutchinson's actual testimony, which is the only evidence we have, she did not emphasize the word me. In fact, the way she testified, it sounded like she believed Trump to be saying that they weren't going to hurt anyone. Well, let's see, here's the tape.
2: You know, I, I don't effing I care uh, that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me, take the effing bags away.
0: And then Howard adds, I don't like Trump, and I am continually disgusted by what I've been learning through the congressional hearings. But to maintain credibility, outlets have got to report the news accurately. And here's the part that jumps out at me. I don't know if it's the deepest point in the world, but it did get me to thinking. Even if it might mean, talking about reporting news accurately, even if it might mean that they don't get to score some points that they'd love to score. Too many in the anti-Trump world were fudging when reporting on Miss Hutchinson's testimony. I appreciate you raised the issue in your podcast. Yes. Yes. I don't know if they were fudging. I don't even know if it was intentional, but every imperative on the side of many, in fact, almost all news organizations is to connect to the audience, to connect. Prove to them that you're more than a bland, you know, the criticism will go, a bland recitation of the news, that you share their values, that they can have an emotional connection to you as a product, as a brand. That's what every brand wants with the customer, an emotional connection. And so when you're talking about the news and you know you have this Trump-hating audience or just this democracy-loving audience or just the audience, the kind of audience that would be paying, riveted, and maybe disturbed by the January. 6th commission just every part of that instructs you or pushes you to say they're not going to hurt me when in fact and it's not the biggest point in the world but it's readily contradicted when you give an emphasis on me and you play the tape of hutchinson and she's saying
2: they're not here to hurt me take the effing bags away
0: so this was a clarifying point to me as i hope to maybe uh, light upon a clarifying point or two in these spiels that you might lose the opportunity to make a point that would delight and resonate with your audience, which is, I think, explains a lot of the programming choices and the emphasis and the statements put forward as fact by the news organizations of today. I, I, I think there used to be so much more of an emphasis on accuracy, fairness, because there was an accountability within the audience itself. When news stations and news outlets commanded broad swaths of the community or broad swaths of America. And they really were broadcasters. They knew they had so many in their audience who wouldn't see the news or just see facts as wanting to reflect to them uh, their own predispositions. So back then, and maybe this is more of an imagined time, and I'm sure you know things were bad for other reasons and gatekeeping that kept uh, valuable voices out of the newsroom. But there was a time when, I don't know, the Cleveland Plain Dealer or the Sacramento Bee or the Modesto Bee or any newspaper name to be, knew they couldn't just casually engage in an inaccuracy that hurt, say, Republicans or, depending on the outlet, hurt, say, Democrats without a significant number of people in the audience saying, wait a minute, I'm a Republican or wait a minute, I sometimes have that ideology. That does not comport with reality as I see it. I'm not even talking about a fact of emphasis. I'm talking about giving Giving the best explanation for the other ideology's stance on an issue. If you give a cartoon explanation, you'd have so many of your audience saying, wait, I don't think that, you know, our borders should be open, or wait, I don't think that we should defund the police, but you've got to articulate a, something akin to where I'm standing on that issue. And now... It is much more the case with our fractured media in silos that you're speaking to an audience who wants to see the world reflected as they see the world. And there is almost no downside for saying that Cassidy Hutchinson and really believing that Cassidy Hutchinson said, they're not here to hurt me. Not the biggest point in the world, but one that I want to thank you, Howard, for putting in my brain. And what's the only way that I could give my thanks during an Antoine Tig? It is by the awarding of the Lopstar. So I give to you, Howard Rosenberg, the Lopstar of the Antoine Tig. <music> And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is The Gist senior producer. Michelle Pesca, COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's Advertise Cast. For advertising inquiries, go to slash The Gist. Umperu, Gperu, Do Peru, and thanks for listening.